Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Um, we're opening up the Word of God in Matthew. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. In January, we were f- focusing in on prayer and calling out to God. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what Jesus promised and what it looks like for us to live it when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This idea of being holy enough to get close to God is easily misunderstood. In Jesus' own time, there there was a sharp, sharp contrast between what the religious leaders were teaching and what Jesus had to say about it. And so we want to soak ourselves in Jesus' vision of holiness and how we can be people who live close to God and represent him well here in the world. And and as we do, um, we're going to be seeing that Jesus' perspective, let's just flip to the next slide, it is summarized here. He kind of introduces this idea in verse 20 of Matthew 5. And as we proceed this morning, you're, pro- you're going to want to have a Bible you can look at. I know some folks, you, you carry your own print Bible. Some folks have apps on your phone. I could use four volunteers right now because we've got a, a set of, of these Bibles and we've already tabbed it for this verse and this passage. So grab a stack, Jocelyn. This doesn't look like four volunteers yet. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sarah. And, and the, some of them are in back, Jenny. There's uh, eight more back at the tables on each side. So if having a print Bible, don't be shy. Just put your hand up. And these fearless helpers will pass one to you. This is going to be the easiest time you ever have finding a verse because there's one yellow stickum tab that gets you there. And the reason that I want you to be able to actually look at a Bible is because whatever we put on the screen, even your app on your phone, only gives you the ability to see a little bit at a time. But being able to have a page or a couple pages open right in front of you will let you be able to see a little more of what Jesus is saying than we're going to be able to snapshot here with the screen. There's no charge. Go ahead. If you're still waiting for one, if you don't want to have to share with that person next to you, we've, we've got enough. All right. So what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? It's open notes. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, meaning is better than, right, is greater than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you know, if the Pharisees and teachers of the law are doing so good, that's maybe that's not a very high bar. Right? I mean, it's kind of common for us to just want to compare to other people and say, as long as I'm doing better than so-and-so, I must not be too bad. But who were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, when it came to obeying the religious requirements and the rules of the Old Testament law, plus all the ways that the teachers of the law had written additional rules themselves, these guys were the pros. They were kind of defined as being better than you and me in all of the aspects of doing acts of righteousness and following all of the rules. And so if the best people aren't good enough, what do you do then? 
What are we supposed to do then? If Jesus picks out the people who are have the best reputation of doing it all just the way they're supposed to, and he says you have to be better than the best to even get in, well, now what? Well, here's, here's the fact, good, and it's good news, that Jesus isn't asking for a greater quantity of the same sort of stuff that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing. Instead, he's talking about us needing a conversion in our thinking about what we think righteousness is really about. He's saying that all these things that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing are currency that doesn't add up to enough. And instead, there's a different approach, a different perspective, a different way to understand righteousness that's close to God's heart. And so what we have is a collision of opposing perspectives of what righteousness is really about. And that matters for you and I today because our own thinking risks being more like the way the Pharisees thought about righteousness than it is like Jesus thought about righteousness. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had a system of rules and regulations requirements to follow. It was a lengthy list, pretty comprehensive. But for the most part, it it did actually detail out what they what you were expected to do in virtually every circumstance and situation in life. It would detail out how far you were allowed, how many steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath before it became work. How heavy an item you could lift on the Sabbath before it was defined as doing work. And so in each circumstance of life, they work to detail it. And, and if you're in the process now of filling out your tax returns, you find that there are codes that are very complicated, very detailed about what you do. And this comprehensive list of things was the kind of checklist that the Pharisees and teachers of law would use for themselves and to apply to others. And so I think I have to admit there's some ways that having a checklist like that is pretty attractive because even if even if I'm not getting them all right, at least uh, it lets me know where I stand and grades me and gives me very specific things to not do or to do that kind of give me a reference frame for, okay, what does it look like to be good and to do right and do the right things? But Jesus, in contrast to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he upends this. He flips it all around and he rejects the foundation that it's based on. This idea that we can earn our place of favor with God by what we don't do and what we do do. Instead, Jesus calls us into a life of living with God where our behavior isn't based on rule keeping, but instead it flows out of a life that can only come from a relationship with our Father in heaven. I think one of the, one of the dangers of the attractiveness of this approach of rules keeping being the basis of my relationship with God is not that it brings me closer to God, but that it lets me keep God at a distance. It lets me keep God at arm's length because in, in a sense, I allow myself to think that as long as I do this list of things that God says to do and not do, I can keep him at a safe distance, not too far, but not too close either.
And Jesus, Jesus brings God's presence near in person. He is God with us. And when God's presence comes near, it can get pretty uncomfortable because he wants all of me. And when he comes close, all of my secrets are revealed and he knows my heart and it can get disturbing because God with us means that the one who's holy, we were singing the song, holy, holy, holy. And what's, what's that? It's God is set apart. He is other than us. He's the creator and I'm not. And he's powerful and I'm weak. And when, when his presence comes close, I'm revealed in my failings, in my inadequacies, in the differences between who I am as a creature and who he is as a holy creator. His presence bursts the bubble of my self-sufficiency and my autonomy and my desire to be the CEO of my own life. And instead, I'm brought face to face with my lack of control over the things that I really care about and the things that matter to me. On the other hand, following the rules gives me the illusion of control. You know, and if what God wants is just simply for me to do certain things and to not do certain other things, then I can maintain a predictable existence and at least know where I stand. And the very people in Jesus' time who claim to love God the most, who are most diligent about doing the things they claimed God wanted, when God actually showed up in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, they killed him. I think part of the, the risk and the danger for us in embracing this rule-keeping orientation to our relationship with God is it actually lets us do with God what we want instead of the other way around. And when our attitude and our approach to God's commands are set up to justify ourselves and give ourselves selective standards, especially when that primarily enables us to look good in the eyes of other people, what we're doing is we're siding with the Pharisees instead of with Jesus rather than with the Lord himself. And unfortunately, it's a lot more common than we may think. I don't think any of us are particularly immune to it. Back in 2013, uh, the Barna Research Group did a survey that was exploring the um, the responses of, of people who said they were Christians to questions that were designed to contrast the attitudes and actions of Jesus with attitudes and actions that they considered, that the surveying folks considered to be more self-righteous, that they lined up with the way the Pharisees thought and taught. And so to interpret the results, this up-down axis represents either Christ-like actions or Pharisaical actions, and the left-right axis represented attitudes. So you have actions and attitudes here. And, and unfortunately, the negative side in these four quadrants represents being more like the Pharisees, and the positive side would represent being more like Jesus. And do you know what's wrong with this picture? Next slide. It's that the majority of Christians in the U.S. think and act more like Pharisees than like Jesus. This large circle of 51% shows responses that indicate attitudes and lifestyle that lined up more with the way the Pharisees thought and taught, while only 14% are up in the upper right in the, in the quadrant that ought to represent for us the way Jesus acted, thought, and taught. That's challenging. 
this. In fact, when they did a, a further breakdown of who was responding to the questions, they found that that number in the upper right hand even shrunk. Oh, before we get there, um, upper left, lower right, uh, represent where there's a mismatch between our attitudes and actions. And it's possible for us to think that we uh, and have attitudes like Jesus, but have our behavior actually end up looking more like the Pharisees. And similarly, the other way around, we can do the right things for wrong reasons as well. And so if the sweet spot is that upper right, uh, when you break down who is responding, some of the categories of respondents have even lower numbers, like men. If they just pulled the men, that 14% goes down to 9%. Politically conservative views, that number goes down even farther. It's challenging to look at the way that you and I need a conversion in our thinking so that we don't just live for Jesus, but that we live like Jesus and that we don't just believe in Jesus, but that our beliefs start to match Jesus's beliefs and we believe like Jesus and not just in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is aiming at in this chapter. As as we continue beyond this verse 20, we run through the end of chapter 5 now together. I want us to see that Jesus is teaching about how we think and act as members of the kingdom of heaven. What it looks like to live as children of God in the world. How do we incarnate the very things that heaven has brought to earth in his son, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does is he takes several examples of religious teaching that was familiar to all of his hearers, and and he adds them all together to make a point here at the end of the chapter about what being righteous people is really supposed to look like. And he uses a repeated phrase half a dozen times. Next slide. Yeah, here they are. Good. He says, you've heard it said. And each time that he says... You've heard it said, he brings their attention to a religious teaching of their time, mostly drawn either from the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, but in some cases conflated with some of the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then Jesus reinterprets each one to take the focus off of ourselves and to center it back around God the Father and where his heart is. And as he does, Jesus is not just replacing each rule with a new updated version. It's not like law 2.0. It's not just giving a a version update to the same thing. He's giving a new perspective, a different foundation for what righteousness really involves, that it involves living a life with God, with the Lord always set before us, with God himself as both the source and the goal of how we live. So come with me. We're going to briefly survey these half a dozen times that Jesus says, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you. And so uh, take a look in, in the Bible that you've got in front of you as well as on the screen. I'm using the table format on the screen so you can see the similarities, but the cost of me doing it that way is that you can't see on the screen the sim- what Jesus is saying around each one. So this week, we're admittedly doing a bit of a survey. I invite you to dig deeper this week into each of these. But we're picking up on some of the similarities and the trajectory 
of where he's going throughout the chapter because we're going to get to the final one where Jesus sort of summarizes his take-home point. And we'll camp out there before we finish. So in verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. What was the commandment? Do not murder. Where does that show up? It's on the top 10 list, right? It's part of the big 10, 10 commandments. And, and then Jesus says in verse 22, but I tell you, and remember that's the format that he's going to repeat through all six of these. But I tell you, okay, what's different now? He says, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, which means if you're not an only child, you're already, Jesus is digging deeper than just, have you gotten mad at your siblings? He's talking about the inner attitude that gives birth to murder, murderous speech, and so on. Uh, But we're not going to dig into that in detail. Just keep coming with me. Jump down to verse 27. In verse 27, he says, another one of the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. How many have heard it said? Yes, it's familiar. You don't even have to be a churchgoer to have heard those ten. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But then suddenly, verse 28, Jesus says, but I tell you, but I tell you that, what does he say instead? That's going to come out sounding funny on the recording, isn't it? It'd be like this big pause and mumble. So, right, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery. And so, do you see, it's, it's very parallel to the murder commandment, right? He's saying it's the underlying thing that gives birth to the action is, in fact, where the sin is born. So let's continue. Verse 31. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Excuse me, Jesus. Now that's strong. And he's not done. Jump to 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. What did they hear? What was said to them? Don't break your oaths. When you make an oath before the Lord, you need to keep it. And verse 34, you think, why would, why would you, why would you even tweak that at all? Of course you should keep your oath to the Lord. But Jesus in verse 34 says, but I tell you, don't even make oaths. It says, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem. He said, no. He said, just let your yes be yes. And let your no be no. You don't have to invoke God's name to do what's right. Just keep your word. Um, verse 38. You've heard that it was said. What was said? And tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Whoa. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, slug him with you. No. Turn to him your left one, the other cheek also. And if that's not enough, get down to verse 43. Verse 43 says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is a, it's sort of a delightful example of half of a scriptural truth mixed with something that wasn't in the Bible. 
Um, the first half is what the Bible had said. The second half was added on. Uh, and, and so here we have love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Comes naturally. But I tell you, what does Jesus say? And? That changes the second half and the first half. He takes for granted that we're going to love our neighbor. We tend to love people who love us. He says, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Are you seeing that Jesus wants to replace the foundation of our understanding of what it looks like to live the way God really wants? When we, we say that we believe in him, but we don't change the foundation of our religious perspective, we'll end up inadvertently, I mean, even unintentionally misunderstanding so much of what the kingdom is really about. The Pharisees' approach to righteousness starts with trying to get our behavior right so that we can earn favor and relationship with God. But Jesus describes something that's really rather opposite to that. Instead, what Jesus is talking about is describing finding our identity in our relationship with God the Father through Christ and then having our behavior flow out of the identity that we have as his children through Christ. And so Jesus is describing a life that comes from God where holiness is about us living as whole people restored to the image of our Father in heaven. If you think about the actions and the kind of people who do the actions that Jesus describes, what we're looking at is what it looks like to be restored in the image of God. Here, take a look at our next slide. All right, if, if we're able to do what Jesus says here, it means that we're the kind of people who aren't slaves to our reactions and our desires. That when someone provokes us and wrongs us, instead of that anger coming up inside so much that we want to hurt, strike, even murder someone else, instead we're able to do good to them instead. And that we're people who aren't slaves to our desires and who look at other people as real people, not objects for our own desires. We treat people with respect. We're not looking at people as objects for our own lust and desires or manipulations or schemes, but instead we can value other people as fellow children of God. The people who live like Jesus is talking about are people who keep their promises, marital vows, instead of needing to make oaths, you know, that in flamboyant terms call God in to witness it. We're just honest, and when we make a promise, we keep it. And... And when people hurt us, we're people who overcome evil by doing good instead of needing to take revenge and do to them what they had done and get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we love not just the people who love us back, but we're people who do good to those who don't pay us back. And Jesus says, that's what your Father in heaven is like. Holiness is being like him. It's about being like the Lord. And so righteousness, we, we don't gain that through following a list of things we're not supposed to do and things we do do. Because righteousness is being like our Father in heaven. There is a positive element of godliness that Jesus wants to birth through our own lives. Welcome back, Terry. Thanks for going over there. To, well, Terry was over with Lisa 
as we were talking about, along with some of the others. And so the righteousness that Jesus is talking about has more to do with what we do for others than the things that we avoid doing. I'm not saying, don't don't hear this wrong. I'm not saying that's a license for us to just do anything we want as long as it doesn't seem to hurt somebody else. Uh, no, it, it matters that we're upright in our inner parts before the Lord. There's plenty of things that we say no to because they displease the Lord. But Jesus is saying that righteousness isn't found in rule keeping, but in godliness. And one of the vital demonstrations of that is in loving those who haven't earned it and who may not love us back. And so let's take a deeper dive into these last six verses, verses 43 through 48. Let's read what Jesus said here. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, which, by the way, rain is a blessing in scripture. Uh, I mean, we think of, you know, in every life, a little rain must fall. We think, oh, it's raining on our parade, but that's actually provision. Yeah, it is the rain that brings fruitfulness. And even when there's things that come into our lives that feel hard, that feel uncomfortable, it can be part of what God brings to bring fruitfulness in our lives as well. And Jesus continues, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors in Jesus' times represented sort of the bottom of the morality food chain, right? The, the Jews did not respect the morality of the tax collectors. They were corrupt. They were working for the oppressive colonial government. And they were cheating everybody. Nobody seems to like tax people, no matter what generation or what culture it is. Um, And Jesus continues, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? I mean, you don't even have to believe in a heavenly father to, you know, do good to people who do good back to you, right? Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be complete. Be full of such wholeness that you overflow not only to people who add back to you, but to those who don't add anything. Holiness is about you and I being children of God who look and act like our Father in heaven. It means that in this world, we should be known more for, how should we say it, for what we do for others than for the things we're against. It means that our goal and our aim shifts from ourselves to our heavenly Father. That he is... The, the center gravity around which our lives, our thinking, our desires, our reference point, all orbits around him. That we find our identity not in our own performance, but in being children of our Father in heaven. And Jesus is saying in these verses, it does mean that our lifestyle should look different than people who aren't following Jesus. But what are the differences that should stand out? I mean, if our standards aren't higher than other people in the world, then, you know, if we're known to be Christians, that our moral standards aren't any higher than anybody else's, then we're shown to be hypocrites. Jesus is just as harsh, arguably more harsh on hypocrisy as he is on other sins. And and that's one of the challenges in our culture right now. Guys, professing Christians um, are not well regarded because of the hypocrisy 
that's evident in our lives and uh, largely in the public sphere. So when a survey was done of folks that they call that millennial generation, you know who you are, right, uh, of millennials, 84% said, yeah, I know someone personally who claims to be a Christian, right? But how many of those who say, yeah, I know a Christian, uh, somebody who says they're a Christian, also said that the lifestyle of that person who claims to be a Christian is different in a positive way. It's only 15%. That's sad. And it's not the case. It's because we're all perfect. And there's another 85% out there somewhere who have all, have all blown it. No, it's, it's imperative for us as well to recognize that it's not just about us doing good, good things for people who do them back to us not just for our brothers and sisters here in the church, but that we actually live it in a way that's noticeable beyond these walls and beyond one another. So if we just greet and have over, you know, if we just greet people who are in our own tribe, that's the, the language that Jesus is using here. Hey, if you just greet your own people, if you're just greeting fellow Israelites, fellow tribe members of yourself, then what good is that? If the only folks we have over to dinner our other folks from Mercy Hill, we're missing something. Right? If the only folks we have over for dinner are people who have a nice house and can have us over also, we're missing something compared to what Jesus is saying here. Um, apparently, Jesus doesn't expect his followers to hang out with only other Christ followers. And this, where Jesus says in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Man, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy seems to be the mantra of the political situation that we've got in the States right now. And in our nation right now, that has become gospel. And that's tragic, brothers and sisters, because it's not what Jesus has said here. But that seems to be the way it functions, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Rile up your own base. Paint your ideological opponents as being the devil incarnate themselves. And Jesus is saying something so different. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who are against you. And I, and yes, I am saying that many of the emails, fundraising letters that you may be getting from political action groups are contrary to what Jesus is saying, even if they claim to be Christian groups. Please be discerning. Now, you know, holiness looks like this, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Uh, there's... I want to share with you a beautiful example of that, and it's kind of ironic because uh, it's an example that Lisa Whitehead would have shared, except that she's not here because she's over at Community Hospital. Um, because their family, the Whiteheads, put this into practice in a beautiful way a couple years ago. Um, Jack and Lisa's younger daughter, Addie, was being bullied at school. And some of you who are in the church then, you know it because you were praying with them, praying for them while it was going on. Uh, and Jack and Lisa said, go ahead and tell, tell the church anyway. And I can't tell it like they can. I really can't. But in, in short, here was what was going on. Little Addie was getting bullied at school. And they, uh, mom, and it was physically damaging. Uh, it was physical. It wasn't, you know, in addition to the emotional harm, there was physical harm. It was happening. She was being kicked in the hallway and it was damaging. 
And Lisa and Jack sought to bring it to the attention of the administration, and it ended up kind of climbing its way up beyond the principal, beyond the school, up in the administration. The police got involved because it was physical assault. Uh, and there came a point where, uh, as you know, many of you were, were praying here, Lisa was also praying for them, and she was praying like Jesus said. Because I think that there's something so natural as parents when our kids are being harmed Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what comes really naturally. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what comes. And there was a meeting where Lisa was asked, um, what do you want to have happen to this boy? And Lisa had been praying for him, like Jesus said. And her answer was, I want there to be forgiveness. And I can't, I can't tell it like Lisa does when she talks about how the policeman just about fell out of his chair because that's not a natural way for parents to respond. But that is what it looks like to be children of our Father in heaven. Holiness came into that room. The kingdom of God came into that situation. And the Lord intervened and, and there, some beautiful things happened. And uh, I'll let you know, you can actually, uh, Lisa, just ask Jack and Lisa. They'll talk to you about it. Uh, they'll be glad to do that. I'm sorry she can't tell you the story herself this morning. But I especially want to encourage you, if if you are struggling with unforgiveness, where there's been harm, where there's been wrong, where there's been evil done, and these words of Jesus seem so undoable to you, I want you to know that the grace of God comes to us as we pray. And Jesus gives us this beginning point of loving our enemies by praying for those who persecute us. And, and so if you're, if you're stuck in unforgiveness, if you find yourself wanting revenge, or even what Elizabeth might call low-key, uh, unforgiveness and revenge, where just if you hear that something good happened to this person and you're upset to hear that something good happened to them, God has something for you right here that you can find as you draw close to Him. You may feel like I, I've been doing everything right, but Jesus is drilling deeper than that. He's drilling deeper because your heavenly father wants you free, free from that trap of unforgiveness and the bondage that goes with it. And Jesus, Jesus lived it himself. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested, tortured and ultimately killed, he revealed the righteousness of heaven in loving his enemies by bringing good to those who've sinned, who've rejected him and who've, and he even has given his life for us. So I'd like to invite us to pray, and then Jason's going to lead us in communion. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for being God with us. Not only in the example that you gave us then, but in your presence, in your promise, and your power today. Lord Jesus, we welcome you. Lord, we bow before you, God, and we, we declare that, Lord, we're not righteous like you are unless you come, unless you come and do it in us, Lord. Lord, we admit that our natural inclinations just head in such a different direction than all these things that you're saying and teaching, Lord. Lord, we are selfish. We are self-oriented, God. We're quick to rationalize the things that we want and the things we shouldn't have to do. But Lord, this morning we surrender to you fresh. Lord, we thank you that you came from heaven to earth to make us 
right from the inside out. Lord, we're asking this morning that you'd help us change our perspective, Lord. Convert our thinking about holiness. God, give us grace to draw near to you in these things that you say and not to just set it aside as impossible or too far away. Help us to live like you as well as for you, Jesus. Amen.